We're finishing up, Lord willing, a series on the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrections of Jesus as we come across it in John's Gospel. We said that there, if there was one word to describe the trial of Jesus, it was unjust. Jesus' trial was unjust. If there was one word that would describe his crucifixion, it would be love. It was the love for us, for you and me, that led Jesus to that cross and held him there. And if there's one word that would describe his resurrection, that would be hope. Hope. We find knowledge. Uh, we find hope, rather, in the knowledge that because he has risen, we will rise. Because he lives, we will live. Amen? So our series has covered a lot of ground. John chapter 18 to 20. Matthew chapters 26 through 28, Mark chapters 14 through 16, and Luke chapters 22 to 24. So we've covered a lot of ground scripturally and a lot of ground historically. Now, I think it's fitting that tomorrow happens to be Labor Day because we've certainly labored in his word over these last couple of weeks. And we've pulled out a lot of golden nuggets out of there. One of my favorite, I don't know if it was yours, but was the three crosses. You know, how they tell the story of salvation. And if you, haven't, if you don't know what I'm referring to, just listen to the message from last week on the uh, crucifixion of Jesus. So I pray that you guys have been blessed, as blessed as I have been, through this series. And so we have a lot of ground again this morning to cover, so let's dig in. So we're going to start with the garden tomb, because that's where it all begins. Jesus' lifeless body has been taken down from the cross. And that may seem like a no-brainer to us, but not all criminals who have been crucified were removed from the cross. Most of them were left on the cross to just rot away. As gruesome as that sounds, that just added to the horror. I mean, if you walking by and saw this, you certainly wouldn't want to commit the crime that, that got that person on that cross. So Joseph of Arimathea is a very wealthy man. And he goes to Pilate and asks Pilate for the body of Jesus if it would be released to him. And Pilate agrees to allow him to do that. So picking up in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, we read, When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it in his new tomb, which had been hewn out of rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary, Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. So, Matthew tells us about Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Now, we believe the other Mary is the wife of Clophis, and they follow the men as they carry the lifeless body of Jesus to the tomb. And so that information is helpful for us later on when we see Mary going to the tomb and it's still dark. You might ask yourself, how does she know where the tomb is? It's dark. How is she going to get there? Well, she's already know, she already knows where the tomb is because she's been there already. Joseph of Arimathea, as I already said, is a very wealthy man. You had to be wealthy to have a tomb hewn out of, literally cut out of rock. It's a solid piece of rock carved into the side of a, of a mountain. And so as this is carved out, he has slabs put in there where the bodies of himself and his family would lay when they died. And that is exactly what you see. And for those of you going to Israel, who is going to Israel, by the way? I know Jeff and, and Dee and Joanne. Um, who else from, that's here this morning? Anybody? All right. We will take plenty of pictures for you guys. But um, he's, that's what you see. As you look in the garden tomb, as you look through that door, this is exactly what you see. And because space was such a premium in Israel, even now to this day it's still a premium there, what they would do is they would lay the body to rest on one of the slabs, and as the natural occurrence of decomposition took over, the body would eventually just rot away. I know it's not very pleasant, but then they would go in and collect the bones and put the bones in what is called an ossuary or a bone box. And this way here they could have many different people and keep reusing that tomb over and over again you could get many different people in there because the bone boxes were only so big and then they could be stored in a different place on a shelf in there. So that's what, that's how, and they still practice this today in Israel because space is still such a premium there. So then they would place this rock in front of the tomb to keep the animals out so that that process of decomposition would take place naturally and, and no animals would get in there. 
So Joseph of Arimathea has a tomb just like this. He just had this finished. It's brand new. He, none of one, no one in his family's even been placed in this tomb yet. So he agrees. He wants Jesus to be laid there. And he doesn't know it yet, but Jesus is not going to be there long enough for any of those natural processes to take place. So Matthew 27, continuing in verse 63, So we remember, while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say to the people, he has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So the Pharisees go to Pilate. They claim that he has said that in three days he will rise. Remember the trial of Jesus? They actually brought this up as a witness against Jesus, almost like he was making terroristic threats that in, he was going to destroy the temple and in three days raise up the temple. And, of course, Jesus was talking about his body, but they were actually using that statement against him. Obviously, they understood what Jesus meant because now they use it as a reason for their concern to have a seal placed on that tomb and have a guard placed there. So Pilate agrees to have a seal put on the tomb, and once that seal, the seal of the of the Roman procreator was put on that, uh, that tomb, no one could open that without, without Pilate's authority. You needed his authority to put a seal on there, and you needed his authority to take it off. And so he also agrees to that a Roman guard would be placed around that tomb. Now, if I'm a Roman guard, and Pilate says to me, I want you guys to guard this tomb, that's great detail right there. I mean, how hard can it be to guard a dead guy's tomb? What are you expecting, really? So as it turns out for them, this is going to be a life-changing assignment. I'm picking up in John's Gospel, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Going back to Matthew's Gospel, again, Matthew 28, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So Mary Magdalene, again we see her name, means Mary from Magdala. Magdala was a first century port city on the Sea of Galilee. Now we first meet Mary Magdalene in Luke chapter 8 verse 2. And we're told that Jesus has cast out seven demons from her. And so the next time you hear her name, she's actually at the trial of Jesus. So she's been following along through the trial and the crucifixion, and now she's present as the, at the resurrection. Mary Magdalene's gotten a bad rap throughout Scripture. Many believe, many have taught from the pulpit that she's a sinner and a prostitute. And I'd like to challenge everyone here this morning to find in your word where she's ever called either a sinner or a prostitute in the Bible. See if you can find that. I've never, I've never seen it. It's not, she's not called a sinner or a prostitute in the Bible. She is a disciple of Jesus Christ, and, and she is a friend of Jesus. And as a friend, she's going to walk with him through the good times and through the bad times, and even now, the dark times. I can't imagine what her life was like being controlled by seven demons. And I'm sure that she was no more of a sinner than you and I are as our lives were once controlled by the demons of our flesh. Amen? I know that they would have continued to wreak havoc in my life had I not allowed Jesus to control my life instead of the flesh. We're all controlled by something. We're all controlled either by the flesh or Jesus. The flesh keeps us in bondage. Jesus sets us free, and Jesus set Mary Magdalene free, set her free from, from her demons, and once Jesus sets you free, you are what? Free, free indeed. So there's a loyalty here. There's a loyalty, for, as anybody would, be loyal to someone who set him free from such a horrible existence. But then, even to today, t tongues have wagged. 
one of the most blasphemous statements made was that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were husband and wife because of this close relationship. She's loyal to Jesus, not because she's his wife, but because she understood what Jesus set her free from. She understood what she was saved from. And listen, when we truly understand what it is that we've been saved from, it has to change your relationship with Jesus Christ. It has to. It has to make us want to walk closer to him, want to be more loyal to him, want to know more about him. He's the one that set us free. Now, for some of us who've been saved, we've also been saved from a life of addiction. We've been saved from a life of crime or a life of deception. We're free. We've been set free from the bondage of whatever sin ensnared us. But even if you've never experienced anything as dramatic as being set free from something like that in your life, and, and if you haven't experienced the, the dramatic way Mary Magdalene was set free from seven demons, you have to understand what it means to be set free. We have to understand what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about, what it set us free from. Yes, it has set us free from sin, but sin brings death, and death brings separation. Separation from life, separation from our loved ones. But many believe today that that separation only lasts until you close your eyes for the last time and it's over. You don't experience anything after that. You just, you take a dirt nap and it's all over. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. For those who don't know Jesus, who are not covered by his blood, the fear of separation through death is frightening, and it's very real. Dying without Jesus, there's a conscious reality to all of this. There's a conscious reality that you are separated from everything and everyone for all eternity. Let that sink in for a minute. You're aware of what's going on. You're aware that you're separated. You're aware that this is going to last forever. You're aware of that. Daniel the prophet writes, many of those who slept in the dust of the ground will awake, those to ever, some to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, 2. Listen to what Daniel's saying. When you awake from the sleep of death, it will be forever, for all eternity. Everlasting life for some, everlasting contempt and separation for others. But make no mistake about it, this lasts for all eternity. Have you ever thought about, even as a Christian, have you ever thought about what eternity and hell would be like? Have you ever thought, thought about what eternal separation from Jesus and from your loved ones would be like? Have you ever thought of what a, an eternity of weeping and gnashing, where the worm never dies and the fires never quenched, have you ever really took the time to think about what that would be like if you had to experience that? I don't even like thinking about it. I know you don't like thinking about it, but listen, we have to think about it because it's going to help us understand exactly what we've been saved from. And if you think about it, it's going to make you shudder with fear. This is what we've been saved from. And some Christians take this for granted. But when you take the time to realize the horror that Jesus has saved each one of us from, it'll change our loyalty to him. It'll deepen our prayer life. It'll make our worship of him that much sweeter, and we won't be able to contain the joy in our hearts knowing what Jesus has done for us. Amen? Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him, Mark 16.1. So from the Gospels, and the reason I go through each one of the Gospels to pick out um, different aspects of this story it's because when we do that, we get, a bigger, we get a bigger picture, an overview of what exactly happened that morning. Now, we know there weren't just one woman. There were at least three, maybe more, who went to the tomb of Jesus that resurrection morning. And if you read all four gospel accounts, you're going to get the different names of the women who visit the tombs. You're going to realize that they were there at different times, and that some of them actually had been there more than once. Now, it's caused a lot of controversy over who was there and who wasn't there. But if you put them all together, it really makes it come alive for you. Mary Magdalene, 
for instance, went to the tomb early in the morning while it was still dark. Now, the day begins at 6 p.m. in Israel, and it ends, or so somewhere between 6 p.m., the dawning of the, the, the start of the day, and 6 a.m., where dawn begins, she went to the tomb. I mean, you can, just, you can figure out for yourself what time that was. I, I tend to think it was a little closer to the 6 a.m. time. And it's probable that she wasn't alone when she went there, because later on in John's Gospel, she says, we do not know where they've laid him to rest. So she actually tells us that there, she may not have been alone. And seeing the stone has been rolled away from the tomb, she immediately runs back and tells Peter and John. Then Mary Magdalene goes back to the tomb with Peter and John, and they investigate the tomb. Then they all return back. Well, Peter and John actually return back to where they're staying. Mary Magdalene seems to kind of linger there for a little while longer, and that's when she sees the angels. And then Jesus appears to her and tells her to go tell the disciples. As she's getting ready to go tell the disciples, then the other women show up. They see the angels. Jesus then tells them to go to Galilee. So you can see, as you piece it all together, there's a flow of events that's going on here. The tomb was a busy place that morning, resurrection morning. It's a buzz with activity, as you would expect. Think of it from your own perspective. You knew Jesus was laid in that tomb, especially Mary Magdalene. She saw with her own eyes that Jesus was placed in that tomb. Now he's gone. Peter and John, although they didn't see it, knew that Jesus was placed in that tomb. John saw the body come down off the cross. He knew Jesus was dead. He must have seen him carry the body away. So they're going back and forth. They can't believe their eyes. They can't believe what their mind is saying to them. They, they see it, but they can't believe it. The tomb is empty. So somewhere before they arrive, the earth quakes, Scripture tells us, and the stone is rolled away by an angel. The earth shook. The earth shook beneath that tomb. It shook with resurrection power. Now, I don't know if this earthquake was felt all over Jerusalem or just felt those around, by those around the tomb, but we know that his earth shook at his death. We know that his earth shook at his resurrection, and both of those are truly earth-shaking events. But one day, the earth is going to shake again at his return. Those shakings, get, they tend to get our attention, don't they? They certainly got people's attention at the crucifixion. They certainly got the attention of the guard who was there that day at the resurrection. Just like when the mountain shook, when Mount Sinai shook, when God gave the Ten Commandments, it got the people's attention. They saw the power of God in the shaking of that mountain. And listen, sometimes God needs to, to do some shaking in our lives so that we can see the power of God working in our life. The author of Hebrews writes, Whose voice then shook the earth? But now is promised, saying, yet once more I shall, I, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of the things that are made, and the things which cannot be shaken may remain. So God has certainly shaken the world around us, and he's shaken your world, hasn't he? I would venture to guess that God at one point in your life has shaken your life. I know he, he's shaken the things of this world loose from your life so that you could see the power of God and so that the only thing that remains in our lives is the power of the kingdom, the things of the kingdom which cannot be shaken. Now for me, God shook my world. It was from a very toxic relationship. And when the Lord shook my world, he shook loose all the things that were holding me back, all of those things. He shook my world so that I could see the power of God in my life. And that shaking, shaking loose the things of the world so that I could see the things of God that were in my life that could not be shaken is what started to change my life. It's what turned my life around. I was able to see his power working in my life when he shook the scales loose from my eyes. And have you ever had that same experience? You know, we were blessed the other day to go together as a church family to see that movie, Overcomers. And if you guys haven't seen that, you got to go see that movie. It was a great movie. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house, I don't think. But one of the characters in that movie was laying in bed with, with suffering from the effects of diabetes, and he had lost his eyesight. 
And so at one point in the movie, he says that the Lord has allowed me to lose my sight to get my attention. Because now he sees God clearer without the sight of his eyes than he ever could while he had sight. Job had that very same experience. God had allowed the world around Job, the things of the world, to be shaken in his life. And in the end, Job said, I had heard of God before, heard of God with my ear, but now I see God. Job's relationship with God changed when his world was shaken. He could actually see God for who he was. He could see the power of God in his life. Before all that happened, as you read through Job, Job is going through the motions. He's making sure that he observes all the traditions and, the, and all the things he's supposed to observe. He's making sure he's, he's sacrificing for his children in case they would have sinned. There was a lot of doing going on in Job's life, but there was very little that we can ascertain from the story, very little sitting at God's feet. Job's relationship with God had been traditional, not relational. But all that changed when Job's world was shaken. So sometimes God allows our world to be shaken so that we can see the power, his power, in our life. Third point we get out of this verse is that the guards who were tough, hardened Roman soldiers were terrified. They're terrified. Listen, these soldiers would just as soon run you through with a sword than argue with you. They weren't terrified that 12 disciples might show up and take Jesus' body. They were probably all amped up for that. I mean, this is like some light exercise for them. This is a little training exercise for them. That's not what terrified them. That's not what made them fall down like dead men. No man would have done that to them. Something else had to cause them to shake with fear and fall down as dead men, and we know from Scripture it was the angel. And all his brilliance coming down from heaven and rolling back that stone as the earthquake, that is what terrified them. They'd never seen an angelic being in all their glory. So the brightness alone would have frightened them. But I can't imagine the power and the majesty of this angel as he rolls back this tomb, this stone to this tomb. And so it appears as if they faint while all this is going on. I would faint. I don't know about you. But I would have fainted at the sight of that. And as they're laying there as like dead men, Jesus simply walks out of that tomb. So picking up in verse 2 of John, Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb, and they ran together but the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there. The linen clothes were lying there, yet he did not go in. And Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And when he saw the linen clothes laying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not laying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself, then the other disciple whom came to the tomb first went in also and saw and believed, just as they did not know the scripture that he must rise, for as yet, rather, they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. So Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb. It's still dark and she discovers the tomb is empty. She runs then and gets Peter and John. And what I find so interesting about this whole story is their reaction. Peter and John both reach the tomb. John, of course, in his youth, runs, outruns Peter, and I'm sure there's a message in there somewhere, but John outruns Peter, gets to the tomb first. John, not willing to go into the tomb, just stoops down to get a little better look. And when you get to the garden tomb, it's not so that you could just walk into this door. You really do have to kind of bow down a little bit to get in there. Peter, in his impulsiveness, go figure, I mean, it's Peter, he goes right in, and John writes that they saw the tomb empty, and they believed. So Peter and John see the tomb empty, and they believe. What? What is it that they believe? Well, for starters, they believe the tomb was empty. I mean, they can see the tomb is empty, so their belief is in what they could see, the evidence. I don't think at this point they're ready to believe that Jesus simply just walked out of this tomb. And John says as much, that they did not yet understand the scripture that he would rise again. 
They didn't understand at this point what the resurrection would mean not only for them but for all mankind. You see, at this point, they had a faith based on evidence, what they could see in the here and the now. They were focused. At this point, they're focused on the temporal. They're not thinking about the eternal, not thinking about what Jesus had said that he would rise from the dead and what that would mean. They're simply thinking about focusing on what they can see. But in a very short time for them, that's going to change. Their faith would no longer become an evidence-based faith. It would become a resurrection faith because they would see the risen Christ, and that would change their life forever. You know, it's always been the reaction to the disciples, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it was a defining moment for me in my faith. Until then, you know, you, you have doubts, you're searching, you're looking. But when I came to the realization of what each one went through after this, that was a defining moment for me in my faith. Because they could have all gone back to their own lives, every one of them. There was nothing preventing them from doing that. They would have mourned over Jesus for a period of time, and then they could have just simply moved on with their lives. But that's not what happened, is it? Every one of them, including Paul, suffered. They suffered tremendously for what they believed. All except John was put to death for what they believed and what they preached. And listen, although John didn't die at the hands of his torturers, it wasn't for lack of trying. You all know the story. They tried to dip John into boiling oil, and he survived it. This is not a hoax. This is not a conspiracy. Because if it was, and put yourself in this position, if this was a hoax, if this was a conspiracy, at what point do you say, oh, I was just kidding, just kidding. He's dead. We hit him. At what point do you say that? When your toes hit the oil? When the axe is over your head? When they're about ready to, to crucify you upside down on the cross? At what point... Do you say this is a hoax? We were just kidding. Why would 12 men face the persecution, the pain, the rejection, and the death that they faced for a lie? Would you? I wouldn't. Their faith became a resurrection faith. They saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead, and that changed their life forever. They willingly faced all of that because they knew what they were preaching, they knew what they had seen, and they knew what they believed was real. And I hope it's just as real in your life here this morning. You cannot say that you have met the risen Christ and not have your life changed. Amen? So the second point I want to make in this passage of Scripture is the folded handkerchief. Much has been made of this folded handkerchief. Now, some of your translations, and I'm, I'm just curious to see, how many of your translations say napkin, a folded napkin? So it's interesting because this isn't a napkin in the sense that we would think of a napkin, right? In fact, there's a story floating around the Internet, and it's been floating around probably since 2007, about this folded napkin. And the story goes something like this, and I'll just briefly give you a little synopsis of it. The story is based around a servant and a master, and the master's having his dinner, his lunch, whatever it is, and if the master gets up and just crumples up his napkin and throws it on the table, then the servant can come in and clean off the plates. It means the master's done. But if the master gets up and folds his napkin and puts it down, the servant won't touch the place setting because it means the master is going to return. And so the, the moral of the story is that Jesus is going to return. It's a nice story, but you don't get that out of this account in the, in the open tomb. This folded handkerchief doesn't say all of that. In fact, in ancient Jerusalem, a person sitting down to a meal would wash his hands before and after the meal, and we know that from rabbinical writings. But nowhere in the rabbinical writings does it say how they dried their hands. Now, I'm sure some used a cloth of some sort, and some just simply did this. That was the guys. They just dried their hands on their shirt. We still do this today, don't we, guys? That's it. But there's nothing in the rabbinical writings that would confirm this story on the internet. So if you've heard that story before, it's a nice story. I don't think it holds any water. Now, John, the word John uses here for handkerchief means a cloth or a towel. And the word folded 
also has different meanings. It can mean twisted. It can mean entwined. It's also been translated rolled up or wrapped up. So the point is the, the language doesn't necessarily suggest that Jesus took time to fold the napkin into a little square. So there's really no special meaning to the, to the napkin. I just wanted to kind of get your interest for a few minutes and then destroy that. But in fact, the way the clothes were laying on that slab that day could just indicate that Jesus simply went right through them as he rose up. Verse 11 of John 20, But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one on the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and John returned to wherever they're staying. Mary um, who f had followed them back to the tomb, lingers around, and she now takes a good look into the tomb for herself because, again, she still doesn't believe that Jesus has just simply walked out of this tomb. Someone must have carried him out. There's got to be some kind of evidence. She's not believing what her eyes are seeing. And but now when she looks at the tomb, instead of seeing an empty tomb, she sees two angels sitting there. Mary is loved of the Lord. She's a disciple. She's... No more loved than you or I are loved. No less loved than you or I are loved. But notice she has a much different encounter with these angels than the Roman soldiers did, didn't they? They saw these angels in all their brilliance and all their power and all their might, and it frightened them near death. Mary sees them as two men who she obviously has no fear of whatsoever. And listen, there's a difference between those who believe and those who do not. Those who do not believe will see the power and glory and majesty of God in all his might, in all his wrath. And for us as believers, we're going to see him as God, as Christ, as our friend and Savior, as the one who loves us. And we're going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And the angels ask her, why are you weeping? And she responds, because I do not know where they have taken my Lord. Then when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and to your God. So she turns to leave the tomb. She encounters the risen Lord. For some reason, she doesn't recognize him yet. And perhaps he's hidden his identity, just as he did with the two disciples on the Emmaus Road that day. And Jesus asked her the same question the two angels asked her. Why are you weeping? Mary's weeping. Jesus knows this isn't a time for weeping. This is a time for rejoicing. And had they truly understood, had they truly known what was happening, at that point, they would have been rejoicing. They would have been beside themselves with joy. But notice, as soon as Jesus says her name, she instinctively knows who this is. The sheep really do know the shepherd's voice, don't they? And so Jesus says, stop clinging to me. And it doesn't mean that Mary just gave him a big bear hug and wouldn't let him go. And it doesn't mean that by her touching him, because he had his resurrected, glorified body, that she would defile him in any way. In the Greek, Greek language doesn't allow for that. It means what Jesus said is don't detain me any longer. I've yet to ascend to my Father, meaning I have more things to do. I've yet to ascend to my God, your God, my Father, your Father. And the implication would have been, I have to go. I have things to do. And perhaps he's thinking about the two disciples that he's going to take a walk with in a very short period of time here. So he tells her, go tell the others. And as she's leaving, the other women show up. Luke tells us that Mary Magdalene now is there, jo Joanna, the mother of James, and the other women who are with her now at the tomb. And so they all see Jesus, and Matthew tells us they held him by the feet, so now they're really holding on to him, not letting him go. And they're worshiping. 
him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So verse 18 of John 20, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that she had spoken these, and he had spoken these things to her. Now Luke tells us also that she wasn't alone. He also tells us that it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Joanna rather, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles and their words seemed to them like idle tales. They did not believe them, but Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes laying there by themselves, the cloths rather, laying there by themselves, and departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Luke 24, 10 through 12. So Peter and John and the women have seen the empty tomb. They know, Peter and John know what the women are saying is true. But the other disciples had not been there. They didn't witness this. So they dismiss what the women are telling them is just idle tales. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but women in, the, in that period of time in ancient Jerusalem were not very, well, they weren't used as witnesses at all. They weren't considered reliable witnesses. But notice who the first witnesses are to the resurrection. Jesus. Um, Mary and, and, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and Joanna were all witnesses. They're all women. Women are the first witnesses to the resurrection. And Jesus, even in his resurrections, breaking down discrimination that existed in Israel at that time. Jesus is, is showing that women are valued in the kingdom. He's showing that their witness, their opinions, their feelings, their input are valued in the kingdom of heaven. And so, therefore, they are to be valued in the church. This time, Peter returns to the tomb and spends a little bit more time there. And perhaps... He still can't believe what his eyes are showing him, that that tomb is empty. And he goes in for another look, and it seems he spends a little bit more time there, and he marvels. He marvels over what has happened. Where is he? Where could he possibly be? And so after the women see Jesus at the tomb, he then appears, not to Peter, not to John. So he appears to the women first, and then the very next appearance is with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And I believe that this story of the two disciples going home to Emmaus really hits home for us the entire account of the resurrection. It really puts it into focus for us. So if you would, turn to Luke chapter 24. And we're going to finish up here. Luke 24, verses 13 through 34. And we're going to go through that day after Jesus rises from the dead after he appears to the women, and he walks with these two disciples as they go home to Emmaus. So that same day, two of Jesus' disciples were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stopped short, sadness written across their faces. So here they are, two of Jesus' disciples. They're on a seven-mile journey home, which took them about, would have taken them about four hours. And they're going to this little village called Emmaus. And notice they're talking with each other about the day's events. Not only the day's events, but what's transpired over the last few days. They're talking with each other, face to face. Go figure. Who does that anymore? You know, I grew up in a world that had no cell phones, no computers, no internet, no HBO. Horrible time to grow up. No Netflix, no video games. Yeah, we had Atari, but can you really consider that a video game? Listen, families actually sat down together. They sat down every night and had dinner together and discussed the events of the day. When you wanted to hang out with your friends, you know what you did? You made plans at school to meet after school because there was no other way. Once you went home, it was, it was over. Unless you went to their house, house and got them. I remember actually talking with my friends face-to-face. -face. Or there were times when you did talk on the phone, and that was something that was attached to the wall by a wire. <laughs> the point is we communicated. We communicated. We were involved in each other's lives. We sat down as a family and talked to each other. 
we hung out together as friends and talked to each other. And today, with all the technology that we have, we have never been more alone. The phone that we have on our cell phone is just a seldom used app. I mean, how many of you text somebody and they get mad because they call you back? I didn't call you. I text you. Text me back. You know how that works. How many times have you called your kids or your kids text you and you call them back and they don't answer the phone? But text them two seconds later, they'll answer that. Listen, the point is that we would rather text one another than speak to one another. We would rather video chat than speak face to face. This world is fast becoming a very impersonal place. Separated. Separated not only from each other as a family. Separated not only from our friends, but from the word of God. Because listen, when you sit down to dinner with your family, that is the perfect time to discuss what happened for the day and to relate those events to the scripture, to talk about eternal things, not just the temporal. So I digress. I'll get off my horse. So as they walk along, Jesus joins them, and for now his identity is shielded from them. And Luke tells us that there's sadness written across their faces. And that description tells us all we need to know about the condition of the disciples' hearts. How many of us here this morning have gone through periods of sadness in our lives where the sadness is written across our faces? Many of us. They're heartbroken. They believe, they believe that all of their hopes, all of their dreams were crushed that day on the cross. Had they known that Scripture spoke of his death and resurrection, this would have been a time of rejoicing for them. But instead, like Mary, it's a time of weeping. It's a time of sorrow. They lost sight. They had all lost sight of who Jesus is, and their hearts were filled with sorrow because of that. The sadness on their faces and the sorrow in their heart came as a result of the enemy's lies to them. I can hear the enemy now whispering in their ear because the enemy has whispered this in my ear. He's whispered it in your ear. Jesus is gone. What are you going to do now? You've put your faith in someone who's let you down. Have you ever heard that from the enemy? You've put your faith in someone who's let you down? That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. And it's a lie that was causing these disciples to be in despair. It's at the root of their sad faces. But Jesus is about to dispel those lies with the truth that's found in his word. And one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about the things that have happened there in the last few days. What things, Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. Notice what their focus is on. They're focused on how Jesus died, on who put Jesus to death. They list all of the things that Jesus was to them, a prophet, a miracle worker, and a teacher. All those things, by the way, are very true. Jesus was all those things, but look what they're focusing on. They're focusing on the temple, what they could see, the here and now, what they saw with their own eyes. Right now, their faith, just like the apostles, is an evidence-based faith. They saw these a temporal-based faith. They have no idea what's about to happen to them. Yes, he is a prophet. Yes, he is a great teacher, a miracle worker, but he is so much more than that. He is God, the Son he is the Messiah, the Savior, the way, the truth, and the life. And when we only focus on the temporal, when we only focus on what we can see, we lose sight of the power of God in our lives, that resurrection power that lives inside each of us. Amen? And when you have that power, when you, are, when you know you have that power in your life, you will never lose hope. You will never forget who it is that holds you in the palm of your hand. We have hope. Because our hope is placed in God the Son, the Son of God, the Messiah, who was and is and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, who always was, always is, and always will be. That is who our hope is placed in, the one who died for our sins, 
so that all who believe in him will be forgiven. He is risen from the dead as a guarantee for our future resurrection. And he has gone before us to prepare a place for us so that where he is, we can be also. You know, I was thinking about this very verse this morning as I was getting my little grandsons ready to come to church. I made a critical mistake as a parent and grandparent of getting them ready first. You're laughing because you know what I mean. So I get them all ready. They're all set. Their bags are packed. They're getting out the door, and I'm not dressed yet. Now i got to fight with them wanting to leave while I'm getting dressed. So I'm not <laughs> but I thought about this because Jesus went and prepares. He's preparing right now a place for us. He's getting it all set up so that when we're ready, we're going to go to him. It's already set. He's looking at each one of us here this morning. And he says, oh, i got a great place for you. Missy, I put you all the way over here. <laughs> and Alan, I put you right next there, next, next to her. He's preparing that place for each one of us. How awesome is that? So verse 21 of Luke 24. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. And so in this very verse, we have another clue to the hopelessness of the disciples, to what they're struggling with in their heart. They had expectations of who the Messiah should be. They wanted him to be a conquering hero. Anyone in this room ever have an expectation of who your Messiah should be? How your life should go, how he should orchestrate it? Ever lay out a plan for the Lord? I picture this huge garbage can in heaven, this trash can, and, and mounds and mounds of crumpled up plans laying in front of it. Our plans. Because the only plan that really matters is the plan he has for our lives. Amen? So the time of this is happening is Passover. And the city of Jerusalem would have swelled, to, by some estimates, over 2 million people. So if you're going to start a revolution, if you're going to come against the Roman guards, which were greatly outnumbered, this is the time to do it. This is the time when you can summon a huge army to come against Rome. And so they fully expected, many of them expected Jesus to do just that, to raise up an army against Rome during this Passover. But instead, Jesus is sentenced to death by the Romans. And his death on the cross put to death their expectations rather, of Jesus ruling over Rome and over Jerusalem at that time. And so that's the key to this encounter. They had put their hope in the Messiah. In their mind, they're wondering, did we put our hope in the wrong person? Was Jesus truly the Messiah? It wasn't a misplaced hope. They had put their hope in the right person. What was misplaced was their expectations. Again, they're only focusing on the current situation. They only focus on the here and now, what they could see. And to them, at that very moment, that seemed hopeless, didn't it? They truly didn't understand why Jesus came to this earth because from their perspective, they thought he came to this earth to save them from, the op from Roman op opposition, oppression rather. But Jesus came the to save the world from oppression. Not just Jerusalem, but the world. Not just Roman oppression, but oppression from sin. Jesus is a conqueror. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered Satan. All of that on the cross. They didn't understand the relationship between the cross and being set free. They didn't understand that he came to restore our relationship with God, a relationship that had been lost in the garden. They didn't understand that he came to save us from a separation, from being separated from, from the Lord for all eternity, from everyone and everything else. Jesus came to set us free. Not free from the Romans, free from the bondage of sin. Then some women from our group, they continue to tell Jesus, from our group of followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to sea, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. They're really confused now. They know Jesus died, but his body isn't in the tomb. It's missing. And this should have been exciting news for them. 
Because it means that Jesus has risen from the grave, that he is not dead as they had feared. And that is the very reason that we have hope as believers, isn't it? That because Jesus lives, we will live. Because he rose from the grave, we will one day raise from the grave. So that where he is now, we will also be. you got to tell yourself over and over and over. I know you've heard that from me a million times. But listen, we need to be reminded of that all the time. Because this is what gives us hope in a hopeless world. This is what makes sense in a world that makes no sense. Many of us have lost, lost loved ones in Christ, but even though they're no longer alive on this earth, they're more alive now than they've ever been. And so will we be one day. Even though they've struggled in this life, they're now in a place where there's no more struggles, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. We've been saved from separation. But the promise for us now is a life lived in eternity with Jesus Christ where there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow. A life where we're more alive than we're ever here, more alive than we are here right now. That's what we get to look forward to. All of that in Jesus too. I can't wait. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe that all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus is now teaching them a Bible study. And he's getting their focus off the temporal, and he gets it back on the eternal. He takes them through the Bible and it shows them how the Bible, almost every page, speaks of him. You know, the Bible, that book you're holding in your hand, although it was written thousands of years ago, contains all the answers we need for today's problems. It is living. It is still alive. It still speaks to us. All that we struggle with today, the answer to all of it is the same answer as it was on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. The answer is Jesus. It's a one-word answer. It's Jesus. It's not a 12-step program. It's a one-step program. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. And the enemy can blind us with the truth, and he can as he did with the disciples that day. He'll blind us to the truth. He'll take our focus off of, of Jesus and put them on everything else, on every situation and circumstances in our lives. Even I forget sometimes that I need to get my eyes off of what's going on in my life and get them back on Jesus. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things that we will soon, the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Get your eyes off of what you're going through now and get them on Jesus and your perspective will change. Amen? By this time, they're nearing Emmaus at the end of their journey and Jesus acted as if he was going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it is getting late. So he went home with them and as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. So they're nearing the end of their journey. And there's a couple things that, that I want to point out to you in this passage of Scripture. First, they're nearing the end of their journey. Second, Jesus is still with them. And third, thirdly, Jesus breaks bread with them. And as you read these verses, it should bring an image to mind. Jesus is walking with us on our journey, just as he's walking with these two men. He walks with all of us along this journey. And one day... We're going to get to sit down at the end of our journey with him and break bread with him just as he did in the upper room with his disciples. You know, when we have communion here, and we're going to have it next week, when we have communion here, after Jesus breaks the bread and, and he takes the cup of wine, he blesses it and he says, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That's an amazing promise. That all those who have placed their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ will one day sit down with him at the end of our journey and we will break bread with him and we will drink of the fruit of this vine 
just as he did that night with his disciples. All of those who have gone before us will be there. What an amazing reunion that'll be. Suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him. At that moment, he disappeared. Their eyes are open. They recognize Jesus. Listen, the healing for us comes when our eyes are open, when the scales fall off our eyes and we recognize Jesus for who he is. But the healing doesn't end there. The healing continues throughout our walk. The more and more the scales fall off, the more we recognize Jesus, the more we realize who he is and what he's done for us, the more we realize what he saved us from, the more we heal. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And I love this part of this passage of scripture. Their hearts burned. They discovered a new purpose. They discovered renewed hope. Jesus was the reason for that new purpose. Jesus was the reason for that renewed hope. Listen, there's moments in our lives, all of us have experienced it, where there's darkness. And that darkness can cloud our minds. It can cause us to lose hope. It can cause us to lose our sense of purpose. And then even in those moments, we may contemplate doing something that we'll regret. That's why I can't stress enough to keep your eyes on Jesus because he is the reason for our hope. He is the purpose that we do what we do, the reason we get out of bed in the morning. He gives us that purpose. He gives us that hope. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside each one of us. We need to start acting that way. We have trouble getting out of bed this morning, in the morning. Jesus just rose up through those clothes and made an impact on the world. When we get up in the morning, we should get up with that same resurrection power in each one of us, even, those are, even though the, the joints are, are creaking and the bones are hurting. <laughs> go out that door ready to make an impact on somebody's life. Amen? Within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem where they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them who said, The Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. So the disciples now are telling them about their story, and they're going to tell them about their story. This is their purpose, to tell others that Jesus is alive. This is the very purpose that you and I have been saved for, to tell others that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is coming back, what Jesus has saved you from, what Jesus has saved them from, the very reason that Jesus has come to this earth. That's our purpose. that he literally came to save this, all mankind from sin, from death, and from Satan. That he took the sin of all mankind upon the cross with him and put it to death there so that mankind could be set free for all those who come to him, could be set free, could be free indeed, could be free for all eternity. Yes, he was laid in a grave, but it didn't end there. Within three days, he rose again. The world needs to know that. He ascends into heaven. And the reason that's so important is because it means that his sacrifice was accepted by God the Father and that our sin was truly forgiven. And the Bible tells us then that we must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. In order for his sacrifice, in order for the resurrection to have any effect on our life at all, we must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And I pray that all of you here, and as I look around the faces this morning, I know that all of you here have called upon the name of the Lord, that all of you have been saved. Because, listen, the most hope-filled words that we could ever hear is, He is risen. And because those words, He is risen, He has risen, what it means is that He lives. And because He lives, we will live. And because all who have put their faith and hope and trust in him will live. So I'm going to close with this. One of the most comforting passages, if you ever doubt anything that I just said here this morning, if you ever doubt your relationship with Jesus Christ, if you ever doubt who you are in him and what he's done for you and what you've been saved from, remember this passage of scripture, Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. 
No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This passage of scripture I found comfort many times reading, and I'm certain you will too, that as a believer, no matter what we struggle with, no matter what happens in this life, no matter how far we've strayed or how long we've stayed there, nothing, nothing. Is there anything? No, there's nothing can separate us from God. Nothing can keep us from spending eternity in heaven with him. That means we don't have to live a perfect life here on this earth. Anyone living that perfect life? If you are, we'd like to follow you around for a week. It just means that we have to live our life in faith that Jesus Christ is our Savior and that he has risen from the dead. And I hope as you, as you leave here today, if you do doubt that, if you have any doubts at all, that you'd see me or see one of the elders before you leave here. Amen?